friends, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 7. We come, um, finally, if you've been with us, uh, we've been kind of waiting on the author of Hebrews the last couple of weeks to get to his point. He's a little slow in getting there. He, he teases us. He, 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 he tells us that he wants to talk about this obscure Old Testament guy named Melchizedek. He's told us that the last two weeks. He said in chapter 5, oh, Jesus He's like Melchizedek. He's a, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then at the end of chapter 6, last week, Jesus has gone into heaven as a forerunner. He's become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What does all that mean? Let's get into it, okay? Let's get into it. Chapter 7, we'll read the whole of the chapter. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 1. Let's hear what the author of Hebrews says. Let's hear what... Our very God who speaks says, let me invite you to receive this with faith, store it up in love and believe it in hope. Uh, For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He, He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. It's become even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who's become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it's witnessed of him. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made priest with an oath, 
by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The grass outside withers, the flowers in your gardens are going to fade. This word does not, it endures forever. Let's pray before we hear and receive his word. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us minds that can make their way through a passage that appears a bit challenging and give us eyes to focus on Christ himself. I pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, there's this weird guy, Melchizedek. He is, as your outline says, a man of mystery. I mentioned twice in the whole Old Testament, Genesis 14, Psalm 110. And the author of the book has been kicking this guy around for a while. He has wanted to speak about this glorious reality all the way back in chapter 5, verse 6. He quoted Psalm 110. He said, Jesus is a priest forever, just like Melchizedek. But the problem, he said, to take a detour. Chapter 6, he says, guys, you are dull. You are dull, dull of hearing. Not dull in terms of your personality, dull of hearing. He's confident of better things for them. So now he proceeds finally to answer what he's hopefully whetted your appetite for. He proceeds to answer, what does it mean that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. You see, he's he's thrown out hands and he's pulled them back. He's teased you and then said, nope, nope, you got to wait. You got to wait. He's given a test, actually. He's given a test to his hearers. He's given a test to you. Do you get turned off by the way I write of Christ? Do you get bored by the way I talk about Jesus Christ? Or are you willing to get to the bottom of the topic? That's what he said in the last chapter. Are you so Immature Christian adults. That's what he said. Are you unable to take the ribeyes of the gospel? Are you willing to go that far? Are you willing to go that far? So finally we arrive at Melchizedek. But it's very important, just the outset. It's very important that we never stay for very long with Melchizedek. This chapter is not really about Melchizedek. This chapter is about the great Savior, Jesus Christ who is our high priest. You see, Hebrews is careful to distinguish types of priests, types of high priests. Jesus ain't your ordinary high priest. He's not a high priest under Moses. He's not a high priest appointed by Moses. He's not like the family of Aaron. Instead, he is a better high priest after Melchizedek, like Melchizedek. I hope you realize, by the way, 
how the author of Hebrews has been talking, how, how he's been coming up with his sermon. This is a sermon, you recall. How has he been getting his sermon points? Well, it's interesting to see that he's been reading the Psalms. And as he reads the Psalms, he says, that makes me think about Jesus. Just look back at chapter 2, for example, if you want to. Chapter 1, chapter 2. You see, he, he, he says, chapter 2, verse 6, he quotes Psalm 8. What's man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And they said, you know what? The story of creation reminds me of Jesus, the incarnate word. And then next chapter, 3, chapter 4, you read Psalm 95. They shall not enter my rest. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts in the rebellion. And he starts thinking about the Old Testament and the people who died in the wilderness. They didn't get the rest, but he thinks of Jesus Christ, the one who brings rest and the rest that God gives. And so he, he writes chapter 3 and chapter 4. And now he's reading his favorite psalm. He loves to quote it, Psalm 110, glorious psalm. He, he says, wow, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He starts thinking about Melchizedek. And then he started thinking about Jesus. Remember Melchizedek? We went over it only a few months ago. But I assume, uh, like me, you forget all these things. Let me just remind you in two seconds, Melchizedek, and his story. You remember Abraham had rescued his nephew Lot from the kings, those uh, five kings in Canaan, that strange guy, Chertolaomer. You still haven't named any kids that name yet, which is good. He, he had rescued his nephew Lot. And then he's met after killing the kings and conquering them with this strange guy, Melchizedek, appears out of nowhere, no family. We don't see Melchizedek as a baby. We don't see his dead body. He comes out of nowhere. Abraham pays 10% tithe to Melchizedek, and in return, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, blessed him in the name of God most high. So what? So that's the fact, that Melchizedek. So what? I think we have to answer three questions here. You have them, you're outlined, that will help us understand how talking about Melchizedek points us to Jesus Christ and his greatness. First question, why? Why would you use Melchizedek? Why would the author talk about Melchizedek? Look at verse three. We see here that Melchizedek resembles the son of God. I start there to answer a very simple question that some people still ask me. Maybe you have had it in the past. It's okay. Is Melchizedek Jesus? No. It's right here. Resembles. He resembles the Son of God. Resemblance is not identity. The ultimate answer is that Melchizedek is, this may shock you, Melchizedek. That's who he is. The author, however, wants us to center on what he does more than who he is. There, there are three things about this mystery man that help us understand Jesus Christ. The first is his name. This is verse 2. Melchizedek is a compound name from the Hebrew words for king and righteousness. You put two words together like butterfly. Well, Melchizedek is like butterfly, but the words are king and righteousness. His very name means king of righteousness. We're told that. He's also the king of a city called Salem. And the word shalom, meaning peace. What's interesting is that we never meet Melchizedek when he's not being a king, when he's not being a priest. He's always a king. He's always a priest. He's the king of both peace and righteousness. So what does that mean for Jesus Christ? 
That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Because we have been justified by God through the righteousness of Christ, we have peace with God. You see, Jesus Christ is your king of righteousness, Christian. He is the one in his glorious perfection. He rules over all that is righteous. And as that king, he, he gives you peace by being made sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He was made sin for you so that you might be righteous in him. He grants you that peace with God. So the name itself, Melchizedek itself, is it's a link. But there's another link here. It's verse 3 if you want to look there. There's a connection with the genealogy of Melchizedek. We're told he has no genealogy. He has no father. He has no mother. What's his family history? We have no idea. And what's funny is, as you read through the book of Genesis, nobody who really matters in the book of Genesis exists without a genealogy. In other words, if you're somebody important, we hear about your daddy and your granddaddy and your great-granddaddy. We hear about all the kids you have. We hear about what they've done. We hear about who you are. Because see, in the ancient world, you didn't really ask, you know, um, when you ask somebody who, who they were, you, you ask them, what did your dad do? Whereas today we ask all sorts of other questions. But Melchizedek appears out of the blue. He goes back into the blue. No genealogy in the past, no genealogy in the future. What's the point? The point is not to focus on Melchizedek. The point is to say the Son of God continues forever. The Son of God has no beginning of days. He is the incarnate one, yes, but he comes into this world as the eternal Son of God. He lives forever. He is undying. See, the Bible's not saying that Melchizedek didn't have a dad or a mom. He had a dad. He had a mom. It's not saying that Melchizedek didn't die in some mystical way. No. He just says, when you read the book of Genesis, it's a story. It doesn't tell you everything about every character. He's a sidekick. He's a side character. He's a bit part. We don't get his parents because that's not important. So the name... The genealogy. Thirdly, there's a clue in the ministry. Melchizedek is the priest of the Most High God. That tells you, by the way, that in the land of Canaan, there were people who believed in God. He's not in the line of promise. There, there were people there who, who somehow, in some way, they were not in the line of promise. But his very name tells us he is a man of faith. He's a true and great high priest, even though he's not in the line of Levi. In fact, because he is both priest and king, he would have been illegal under Moses. Remember the kings who tried to act like priests? Think of Uzzah touching the ark. What happened to them? They were killed. They were punished. That was not allowed. Melchizedek is outside that. Moreover, the author goes on to tell us, starting in verse 4 and following, he goes on to get, talk a lot about the tithe and who gets the tithe from whom and all this rigmarole. What's the point? Well, there's a key detail when Melchizedek talks to Abraham in Genesis 14. Melchizedek gets the money. Melchizedek gets the offering. He gets the tithe. And the author tells us in verse 5 here, look at the uh, Old Testament priest. They have a commandment to get tithe from their brother. But this guy gets a tithe from Father Abraham. That's way better because Abraham's a massive figure in the Bible. But think about it. 
the author says, look, think about it. Only somebody who's bigger than father Abraham could bless Abraham. Blessing is always the greater to the lesser. Father Abraham bows before Melchizedek to receive the blessing of someone greater. See, friends, the question is not who's Melchizedek. The question is, are you looking beyond Melchizedek to Jesus Christ and all the ways in which he is greater than Abraham, all the ways in which he is greater than Moses, all the ways in which his undying rule, his blessing that he gives to you is far greater than anything else in the rest of this book? That's the question. So why Melchizedek? I think we've, we've answered it, right? His name, his genealogy, his, his ministry. He is greater as Christ is infinitely greater. But second question is, why does Jesus Christ come? I mean, why does Jesus Christ come as a high priest? Why do we need another priest? We got so many of them. Even today, there's a lot of people who say they're priests, right? But we got so many folks out there in the Old Testament who are priests. Why do we need one more? Well, verse 11 gives us a a quick answer in some sense. It says, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest like Melchizedek? The point is, the author will tell you later, it's weak. The Old Testament's weak. Moses was weak. The law was weak. The Old Testament priest did not have the ability to bring perfection. And you read through the book of Hebrews, you see the word perfection pop up all over the place. It's, the, it's this guy's way of talking about salvation, the transformation of your heart. What Paul might say, uh, love to Christ, being in Christ. But this author is telling us that the blood of a goat, the blood of a lamb could not deal with sins. The Levitical priesthood couldn't deliver it. Or to put it even more bluntly, if I can, There is nothing in the law of Moses that can actually save you. There's nothing in the law of Moses that can actually save you. You cannot be saved by anything in there. Hope you understand that. That's simply verse 11. Put more bluntly. The priesthood could not give forgiveness. Why? Three reasons the author gives. Three reasons the author gives. First, Because the Old Testament priests were lacking in qualifications. They were lacking in qualifications. What made you a priest in Old Testament Israel? It's very easy. Your dad was a priest. And his dad was a priest. What qualified you to be a priest? Formal, external, legal descent. This is the verse 16. On the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, it's a family business to be a priest. No spiritual requirement at all. No character requirement. No competency. Just the DNA. And I guess that's a great question for you, right? (laughs) It's a question for covenant children in the church here. Are you just a Christian because your dad is? Because your mom is? It's a crucial point in every person's life. There always comes comes a point in, in every person's life who grows up in the church. Have I really trusted Jesus Christ for myself or not? Have I really done it for myself? Or am I just running on the coattails of my parents? If you're just depending upon what 
your family history bring to the table, you're no better than Israel under the law of Moses. Yet what does Jesus Christ have? Verse 16, he has the power of an indestructible life. He has the power of an indestructible, everlasting life. He can do what the Old Testament could never do. He could bring dead souls to life. He could bring dead sinners to life. And he has the power of a righteous life. He is the king of righteousness. He says what goes in his universe. And he gives you that peace. That is why he is someone who is a better high priest. He is qualified, not because of a family history, but because of his life that lasts forever. Second thing the old priest lacked besides qualification was a personal appointment. They were appointed by inheritance. Daddy had the job, you get the job. Congratulations. You want a different job? Sorry. You're going to be a priest. But Jesus is not appointed by inheritance. There's all this talk you see here in in verse 20 and 21 and, and following and 22. There's all this talk here about an oath. It says Jesus got an oath sworn over him. Jesus is appointed, we are told, by an oath from the heavenly father. You are a priest forever. God has sworn. God will not change his mind. It's like if you went to, you know, if you went to the local priest back in the day and you asked him, where's your diploma to forgive sins? They didn't have one. Where's your certificate that says you can actually do anything to my soul? They didn't have one. But Jesus Christ, remember at the baptism of the Savior, what happens? There's a voice from heaven that cries out, this is my beloved son. Why does the father cry out there? Because he is declaring Jesus Christ is appointed for his task. He is appointed as high priest. He is appointed and loved and qualified. And third, the issue with the Old Testament Moses priest They weren't permanent. They're like pastors. In fact, it's actually worse than pastors because the retirement age in the Old Testament for the priest was 50 years old. You know why that was? Not because they were exhausted. They they, they weren't working harder than they do now. It wasn't because they were exhausted. It was likely because they couldn't see well. There were no eyeglasses in ancient Israel. If you recall, part of the job of the priest is to actually detect leprosy, to look at the walls of a house, to see is there stuff on the on the wall that could symbolize infection. You don't want a 70-year-old priest stumbling around your living room without glasses on. So the Old Testament priest did not continue in office. They didn't just retire, they died. So what is Jesus Christ? Verse 23, verse 24, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He lives gloriously forever. He is able to save beautifully forever. And if you think about it, who are the priests of today? They would be the counselors. They'd be the therapists. They'd be the psychologists. They're the ones you might go to when you're down, when you're confused, when you're worried, when you're anxious. They will die off too. They may prescribe medication that balances your chemistry. They may return your equilibrium, but they cannot deal with the root of your alienation before God. That you've not found the peace. You've not found the pardon. You've not found the forgiveness. Our modern day priests, like the Old Testament priests, are powerless to help. 
And therefore, don't be dazzled by, by Jewish practices. Don't be dazzled by going back to Hebrew roots. I recall in, when I was in seminary in California, we had a, a Passover Seder at one point in time. It was interesting, culturally informative. But what was fascinating to me is that my roommate who organized it was way more obsessed about Passover Seder than he was about the Lord's Supper, than he was about the Word of God. He was way more obsessed with the details and the intricacies of all that stuff. And I find it's the case, friends, that when folks are tempted to do this, most of us are not tempted to go to Jewish synagogue. What are we tempted to do instead? We are tempted to look to Moses as our Savior. We are tempted to indulge our interest in what feels fancy. It seems classy. It seems interesting to look into the Jewish festivals, to look into the Jewish laws. But God never meant for Moses to be our Savior. Why go back to what is hopeless? It's hopeless. Why go back to what's hopeless when you have Jesus Christ, who is certain and true? who offers a better covenant, verse 22, who gives a better salvation. That's the great error of the Roman Catholic Church. You know, one of the great errors, I suppose. It depends upon a series of priests. They call their clergy priests. That's the the greatest possible insult to Christ. He is the priest. He is the priest. And they assume that Christ needs a little supplement a vitamin to help his work really do the, the, what it needs to do. He needs no supplements. But let's not attack the Roman Catholic Church without realizing it speaks to many who call themselves Protestants, many who've never come to Christ, many who never trust in his merit, many who never believe on him as their great high priest. Is that you? Are you here simply saying, I don't need Jesus. I'm good enough myself. And I guess, friends, maybe the test case for you is to ask, what do you think about Melchizedek? There are two types of folks who miss the point of this chapter. There's a person who is obsessed with Melchizedek. I've met a couple of people in my life who are obsessed with Melchizedek. I got more questions about this chapter than anything else. And I didn't ever understand why they were, but they were really obsessed with Melchizedek. If you are, you're going to miss the point. You're going to miss the whole point of the chapter. And then there are other people who are bored by Melchizedek. All this stuff in the old town, who cares? Well, if you're bored by him, you're also going to miss the whole point of the chapter because the whole point is the third question. The whole point is the answer to the third question. How is Jesus successor to the order of Melchizedek exactly the priest I need, precisely the priest I need? We get this in verse 25. Consequently. That's a great word, isn't it? Consequently. Because all of this is true, here are the consequences. Consequently. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save to the uttermost. And that verb, by the way, save, that doesn't mean that he did save you back in the day when you prayed the prayer. That's a verb that indicates Christ continues to save. He is able to keep on saving you every day in every way you need. He saves you from your bad temper. He saves you from your fear. He saves you from your depression. He saves you from your pride. He saves your soul and your life day after day. And I suppose we have a great weakness in that we do not realize the present priesthood of Jesus Christ as much as we ought. 
that he continues to save you. Every moment he prays for you. He is saving you right now, this hour. So are, are you praying to him? Jesus, save me today from making stupid decisions. Are you praying, Jesus Christ, save me from this temptation? Are you praying, Jesus Christ, give me the strength I need? And yet the phrase also means that Jesus Christ is able to save on a global extent. He can save to the uttermost ends of the earth. I mean, isn't it great that Jesus Christ is not like uh, uh, Allah? You know what Islam is, right? Islam is forcing 6th century desert culture on the whole world. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus Christ does not do that? Isn't it beautiful that Jesus Christ does not force uh, first century Palestine or 10th century, you know, Byzantine or third century Roman or 21st century American? He does not force, he does not force everybody to look the same way, to dress the same way, to speak the same way. He does not force everybody to have the same gifts. He does not force like Muhammad does everybody to sleep on the right side. You know, if you're a truly holy Muslim, you'll sleep on your right side. I don't like sleeping on my right side. But Jesus Christ is able to save every culture across the world to the uttermost. He can reach the unreached people groups. But more importantly than that, even, this phrase means that Christ can save you and the person who is uttermostly away from him spiritually. He can save to the uttermost the man with the deep, dark stains. Those kind of sins that if you knew that they had them, you would never talk to them again. He can save the woman who is overwhelmed with sadness. He can save the angsty, angry person because Jesus has been there and he has been deeper than that. He has been to the uttermost. He has gone beyond whatever you think your sins are. And now what does he have? He has gone there, but what does he have now? He has an indestructible life. So he is able to save you now because he has the power of an indestructible life. What do you have to do though? Draw near to him. That's what the verse continues to say. Those who draw near to God through him. It means you have to give up yourself. You have to give up your, your attempts to make some sort of uh, righteousness, some sort of peace that you cobble together. You have to stop going back to Moses and trying to make some fancy religion. It won't work. But as you come to him, he ever lives to intercede for you. It's what Paul says in Romans 8. Who is going to condemn me? Some of us are really concerned about other people condemning us and judging us. That's what a lot of folks say about Christians, isn't it? You know, judge not lest you be judged. Stop judging me. I don't like that, which is, of course, a judgment. But who's going to condemn you if Jesus Christ is with you at the right hand of God praying for you? Nobody is. It won't matter what other people think about you. Do you know how, how much that drives your thought life? Jesus Christ brings eternal peace. He brings eternal blessing. God hath done what the law could not do. He has sent his son that we might live. He has sent his son who has been made perfect forever. He has sworn by an oath so it can't be stopped. You cannot, your sin cannot undo this. And he remains forever a priest like Melchizedek.
Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you have given us not somebody who dies in office. You haven't given us a priest who has to retire. You have not given us uh, someone whose daddy we know. And so we can point out all the flaws of the family. You've given us Christ himself and his indestructible life. We ask that you would help us to see his present priesthood for us. That we would rest in that and look to his indestructible life. I pray this in his precious, holy, perfect name. Amen.